Uh, let's start with uh, with prayer. Father God, we come um, before you this morning in knowing that you are a good Father as we already sang about this morning. And we come to a text like this that is weighty and heavy. And um, But Father, I pray that you will help us to see um, the truth that John holds out to us in this passage, uh, that you'd help us to see who you are and what you have done for us in Christ, uh, and by virtue of that, who you have declared us to be, who you have made us to be, uh, and flowing out of those realities that we might live uh, as your beloved, that we might live as children of God. And so, Father, help us in this, give us um, just illuminate our minds, our hearts, that we might see the truth. Your Spirit is the one who leads us and guides us into all truth. He is the one who opens up uh, the Scripture to us, uh, that it might, might be alive, that it might be active, that it might create change in our heart. And so, Father, do that for us this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, as uh, Luke said, my name's Andy, uh, and I have the privilege of um, preaching this morning. Uh, we just recently joined the church two weeks ago, so if you're thinking about joining the church, uh, they may ask you to preach. Who knows? I'm just kidding. That's a bad joke. Uh, but uh, we are excited to be here, very thankful to be here. Been going through the book of First John. Uh, JP and Luke have been leading us in that over the last several weeks, and I'm going to pick up in that as well. Uh, so I just want to say welcome uh, if you are a guest, I know Luke's already done that, but I do want to say uh, welcome. If you if you have a Bible, go ahead and open that up. Hopefully you're already there since we've read out of that. As Luke said, if you don't have one, grab one of those blue Bibles in front of you. Uh, and we're going to continue in this series of First John, and we're going to be, uh, the, the passage that Luke read was 26 through 310, uh, and uh, I was doing 28 through 310. So uh, anyways, that's where we'll be, 228 through 310 this morning. Now before we get into it, let me, uh, have you ever heard the saying, uh, father like son or son like father? Uh, I can't ever remember which way it goes. Uh, but the, the point is that the children resemble their parents, right? There are certain features and characteristics that are just uh, in, in the kids, uh, sometimes more predominant than other times. But your hair color, your eye color, facial features, other physical characteristics are either a combination of your birth parents or very uh, dominant uh, one, uh, the father or the mother. For example, my, my dad and I have, I think, identical feet. Uh, there are other characteristics uh, that we have, but our second toe uh, next to the big toe is on both feet are curved. So my feet are like that, and then my oldest son's feet are like that. So, so there are... We can look at our parents and we can look at our own children and there are things about our kids and there's things about us being kids of our parents that if you look at it, there are physical uh, um, displays uh, that there is a commonality between the parent and the child. Uh, and so uh, our bodies reflect our parents. These characteristics are seen because we are the children of our parents. Now, I think what John is getting at here is this familial dynamic uh, this, that exists not only naturally, but it's a dynamic that exists spiritually as well. 
If we are born of Him, if we are born of God, if we are children of God, then there are characteristics that should be evident in our life, in our pattern of life, how we live, should resemble the one that we are born of, should resemble our Father. And I think that's the thrust of where John is going in this. And what I mean by that is being born of God, if we're children of God, these certain characteristics should be evident in the pattern of life. So let's, let's read, if you will, read with me again in John chapter 2, verse 28. And I'm going to read down through th- uh, chapter 3, uh, verse 3 to start off. John writes, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears you may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Now just take note, that term, born of him, is the first time John has used that term in his letter. You're going to see this born of him or born of God throughout the rest of the letter, but this is the first time that he's introduced that term into this letter. So uh, everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. This, the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet uh, appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. Everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Now this particular part of the passage or this part of the book is a transition. John is transitioning from what he's been talking about to what he's going to be talking about. He's transitioning here. He's been talking about knowing God. He's been talking about seeing God. He's been talking about uh, being saved by God. And so, but there's this transition that is happening in this passage where, where John is transitioning from a mental understanding of knowing what is true about God, remembering what is true about God, to, to this relational knowing Him as a Father. This intimate relationship. So it, it, it moves beyond this mental understanding, this agreement that God is, and this is who God is, and knowing Him and seeing Him to a familial, to a family, relational uh, uh, identity with the Father, that God is our Father and we are His kids. And so there are two main things that I want to try to point out in this passage. And I'll be honest, this passage is loaded with a lot of nuances, a lot of little things that I could spend a whole series on. But there are two main things, two main thrusts that I want to get at this morning and help us see. The first thing is I want us to get a picture of who God is. A picture of God. Who is God as He has revealed Himself in Scripture? What is He like? What has He done to demonstrate who He is? And then the second thing is what are the implications for us as His kids? If we are His beloved, then we should live as His beloved. So what are the implications for us based upon who God is and what He has done and what He is like? To see God for who He is, to know Him as Father, must, must push deeper into our hearts. If there's going to be corresponding behavior, corresponding action, corresponding pattern in life, corresponding characteristics that demonstrate who it is that we belong to. 
It must push beyond just a mental assent, a mental agreement of, yes, this is who God is, and push deeper into our heart if there is to follow a pattern of life that demonstrates that I am indeed a child of God. So my hope this morning, as we reflect on God as a loving Father, that the implication on us as His children would be so stark that it would be unreasonable for us not to live in a way that demonstrates who God is in His love for us. Now I want to pause for just a moment because I understand and I know in talking with a lot of people that the idea of God as Father and just the very idea of Father is difficult. It's hard for a lot of people. In fact, earlier this week I was talking with a couple and she was sharing a little bit of her backstory and because of her relationship or lack of relationship with her father, the idea of God as Father is a very difficult thing for her to comprehend and to understand. And because she has a hard time understanding that, she has a hard time understanding the very love of God for her. And because of that, because of her relationship with her earthly father and the, and the damage that that has caused, she feels like that any relationship that she is in, she has to maintain it. It is up to her for that, if that relationship is going to succeed, it is up to her. And so what is that, tra- that translates into her relationship with God. If her relationship with God is going to succeed, if it is going to happen, it is all on her for that to happen. And that is, a, that is a, an understanding of, of God as Father, a difficulty in understanding God as Father that comes because of her experience that she has with her earthly father. So I understand that there are many, when they hear the term God the Father, or just the very term Father, it, there's a struggle there. There is deep pain there. There is difficulty there. It is challenging to them to see God as Father. Because their experience and their inability or their struggle to understand the intentions of God towards them is because they don't understand the intentions of their earthly father towards them. And so you, you may be here this morning and you may be struggling to understand God's unfailing love towards you because you have never felt the love of your earthly father. So you have no idea what that even looks like. You may be here this morning struggling to believe how God the Father in tenderness and in kindness invites you in to know Him as Daddy. The Bible says that the Spirit resonates with our heart that we might cry out, Abba, Father. That, that term Abba is an intimate term for Daddy. And so you might be here this morning and you hear this idea of God the Father and, and in His tenderness and His kindness inviting you in to know Him as Daddy and you struggle with that because you have never even known your earthly daddy so it's a struggle the concept is hard it is a real struggle for a lot of believers and non-believers to sit in this understanding of god as father and so we live our life often reducing him down to the image that we have of our earthly father we struggle to know our our God as Father, because we reimagine Him into the image of our earthly Father. And so we struggle to believe God's love for us in Christ. 
And we struggle with this tension because we have reimagined God in ways that He has not revealed Himself. We reimagine God in ways of our own experience with the brokenness of our father or our mother, and that's how we relate to God, and it's broken, and we don't understand God's love for us. But God has demonstrated who He is. He has demonstrated that He is kind and loving and gracious, that He is a parent who longs for us to know Him as Father and calls us His children. And so let's get into the text and let's think together by God's grace He'll help us see this picture of God as Father that, that will create in us motivation to live as His beloved. If you're in Christ, you are the beloved of God. And so John is saying, know that, feel that, understand that, and live in light of that reality. So look at verse 28. Chapter 2, verse 28. John writes, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, when Jesus appears, you may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. John here starts off by reminding us of who we are in Christ. He reminds us of who God is, and then he reminds us of who we are in Christ. John, at this point, he's older. He's an old man, maybe in his 80s, uh, maybe older than that, maybe in his 90s. And he's writing to this young church. And so yet, the term little children is, is a term of an endearment that he has to, to these younger people, that he sees them as his children in the faith. But it's much more than that. That term is an identity term. He's calling them not only little children as he relates to them, but he's reminding them who they are in Christ. That they're God's children. And he follows on and he says, abide. Little children, abide in him. In other words, don't turn back from what you know is true. Do not turn away from the truth of the gospel. Abide in him. Remain in him. Abide in the truth of who God is and what He has done and what He has declared you to be in Christ. Abide in that and don't shift one way or another. Why? Verse 28, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. Sometimes we think of Jesus' work as His life, death, and resurrection, which is central it is absolutely true. That is the work in which Christ has done for us. His life, death, and resurrection. And we, but we often only leave it there with it related to the cross. And we often don't think about the future saving work of Christ. Jesus is coming back. Not only has He saved us from the penalty of sin by His life and His death. Not only is He saving us from the power of sin because of His resurrection, the new life that is in us when we're in Christ, but He is coming back and He will save us forever and eternally from the very presence of sin altogether. When we, find, when we receive in that moment the fullness of our salvation. And so we forget that when He comes back, He's coming back in power and glory. And when He does come back, people will respond to Jesus in one of two ways. They will either shrink back in shame at the brightness of the glory of His light, or they will run to Him and bask in the glory of who He is. And the confidence that John speaks here is not confidence in ourselves. It's confidence in what Jesus has done. If I am not confident in what Jesus has done in order to save me and make me new, then when He comes, I am going to shrink back because all I see Him is as a righteous judge that just wants to destroy me. Rather than a loving 
Father, Father God who wants to embrace me. And so I wait in anticipation because of the confidence that I have in Christ. And so before we launch into the implications of being a child of God, John stops here and he says this over and over again in this letter. Abide. Abide. Abide in what you know. Abide in Christ. Do not move to the left or to the right. Abide in who God is and what He has done for you and what God has declared you to be in Jesus. So that when He comes back, you will will run to Him in joy and not in fear. So that you will bask in His glory and not shrink away from His presence. John goes on and tells us in verse 29 that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. How will we know that we will shrink back in fear or that we will run to Him in confidence? How will we know that? John here says that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of God. Let me reverse that to emphasize what John is saying. John is saying those who have been born of God practice righteousness. Those who have been born of God practice righteousness. Why? Because a child will be like their father, reflecting the life and the love and the light of their father. Abiding in Jesus leads to behaving like Jesus. So there's a sense here that our abiding in Jesus must go beyond just believing certain doctrinal truths. As important as that is, it goes beyond that. It must move deeper than a simple declaration of what Jesus has done for us. Because if this reality of what Jesus has done for us and this new creation that we are in Christ Jesus, if that is taking root in our hearts, then there will be transformation that produces behavior that reflects the very character of God. John here in verse 29 says, Those who have been born of God practice righteousness. Have been born, that's past tense. Practice righteousness is present tense. That's important to understand because our behavior is not the cause of our being born of God. It's the consequence. It's the evidence that we have been born of Him. Our behavior is the evidence that we have been born of Him and are a child of God. doesn't cause the new birth. It is the result of being born of God. But what causes this being born again? What causes this being born of Him? I mentioned at the end of verse 29, at the very end, he says for the very first time he introduces this idea, born of Him or born of God. It speaks of our regeneration. When we come into Christ, we're made new. We're a new creature in Christ. The old has passed and the new has come. And then from that, it's like he, he pauses for a minute and he breaks out into worship because he's thinking about the love of God that creates that. It is the love of God for you that creates the new birth in God. First Peter tells us, His great mercy has caused us to be born again. Ephesians 2 tells us, But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love in which He has loved us, made us alive, caused us to be born again in Christ. It is God's love for you that is the cause for your new birth in Him. 
And so John is thinking about this as he's pinning these letters, and it's almost as if there is a parenthesis in what he is saying, and he breaks out into worship. The thought of the love of God is overwhelming to John. The love of God drives the entire passage. In fact, it it drives the entire letter. And this is what comes to the forefront in John's mind at the beginning of chapter 3. Following after the command to abide in in the description of Jesus' return, John is reminding us of who we are in chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. John is so overwhelmed by God's love that he begins to just wonder out loud. What kind of love is this? What that literally means, what kind of love is, is this, the, the term really means what country does this come from? This is otherworldly kind of love. This is alien kind of love. It is different kind of love. It is a foreign kind of love that is different than any other kind of love that we can find or experience on earth. It comes from somewhere else. It's the same term used in the gospel when Jesus calms the winds and the waves and the disciples look at him and say, where does this guy come from? What manner of love is this? What kind of love is this that God would call us who are rebellious people that he would call us children of God? What kind of love is this? This is how wonderful God's love is for us. Not only did Jesus save us from the penalty of sin, and not only did, he, did Jesus come as our substitute, and as we learned a couple of weeks ago, as our propitiation. Propitiation means Jesus comes in our place, and He takes upon Him the wrath of God, and He actually turns the wrath of God to favor towards you. He absorbs it, so that God's position towards you is favor. But even still... God goes further than that. He gives Jesus as our advocate to stand between between us and the judge, but He takes it further than that. He invites us into His family. You see, God didn't have to save us at all. The Bible makes that very clear. We're not deserving of God's loving kindness. In fact, what we deserve is judgment and wrath. That's what we deserve. God is under no obligation to save us at all. But even still... He could have just merely saved us. He could have just saved us from sin. He could have just saved us from hell, from death. He could have just saved us from the penalty of sin. He could have just saved us from our brokenness and then just cast us aside as a a distant dictator instead of an intimate, loving father. But that's not what he does. God doesn't just save us and cast us aside. He doesn't say, well, I've done enough for you. Now just go and don't disappoint me. That is not what God does. He goes further. He steps further in. He invites you into His family. I love what John Piper says on this point. He says, Nothing in us or in the nature of the world required that God would go beyond all redeeming, forgiving, rescuing, healing love to this extreme, namely an adopting love. A love that is not that will not settle for a truce. A love that will not settle for some kind of formal gratitude, but presses all the way in in order to make you His child. Ephesians chapter 
1, verse 3 through 5, the Apostle Paul picks up on this theme and he says this, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Him as sons through Christ according to the purpose of His will. What Paul is saying is that not only as followers of Christ do we receive the salvation that is given to us and that we receive the inheritance of Jesus and that is given to to us, but what more that we receive is that we have been adopted as children of God. That term adoption is huge. Because biblically speaking, we're not all children of God. We're all created in the image of God. But it's only the work of God in creating us new, bringing about this new birth, and adopting us into His family that makes us children of God. We are adopted. God takes our birth certificate and He writes His name on it. This is my child. They've inherited a new name, a new identity, a new heritage. These are, this is my child. This adoption is what some theologians call the crowning jewel of all aspects of our salvation. It goes from just an act of God to save us to an act of God bringing us into His family and saying, You are mine. You are my child. And I am your father. He chose us before the foundation of the world and He predestined us in love for adoption. Before time even existed. As far back as your mind will wonder, as far back as your history books will allow your imagination to go before everything, before He hung the stars, before He hung the moon, before He hung the sun, before He created the, the earth, before He breathed life into Adam, He chose and predestined His children for adoption. If you are in Jesus, if this work of being born again has happened in your life, then you are in Him, and you have always been in Him, and you will always be in, be in Him because He will not let you go. What kind of love, John says, what kind of love is this? That God would call us children of God. When God says, I am Father Again, I know it brings up apprehension in some of our hearts, in some of our minds. Again, maybe your experience of your father is one failed commitment after another. One failed commitment after another. He kept saying he would show and he never did. He kept saying he would be there and he never was. And that's your experience. And so you begin to question the commitment of God over you. Maybe your experience is that your father was, had abandoned you. And absent. And maybe you don't even know who your father is. Even if you had a good father, your good father is still sinful and broken and oftentimes displayed wrongly what God is really like. I do that with my kids all the time. I respond in ways to them that only furthers the brokenness and it and it and it doesn't display to them what God is like. And so we struggle with this, and God says, I am Father, and so for some of us, as soon as we hear that, these walls come up and there's this resistance that happens because the word Father is too painful. But when God adopted you, 
when God chose to set His affections upon you, when God declared you, this is my child, He determined to keep you. He will never let you go. He will keep His commitments towards you. And He intends in this relationship to redeem everything that is broken in your experience of understanding what a father is really like. Ephesians makes it clear we won't we cannot earn this adoption. We don't merit God's love for us. But maybe you struggle with this because that's exactly how you think. If I can just do better, if I can work harder, if I can just do more, if I can pray more, if I can sing more, if I can give more, if I can serve more, if I can just read more, then maybe God will love me for this. But God is not asking us to perform for His love. What he's telling us is that I have chosen you. Despite you. I chose you. Before the foundations of the world in love, he predestined us for adoption. Oh, what kind of love that the Father gives us. How great and powerful and majestic and transcendent and effectual and penetrating and transforming the love of God is for his kids. But it doesn't stop there because... If we're children of God, then we'll look like Him. This transforming love of God, the power of the Gospel, it changes us. Abiding in God's love leads to behaving like Jesus. So live as His beloved. Quickly, let's look at verse 4 through verse 10. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. That term lawlessness is a very specific word dealing with sin. It is a word that means an objection or a refusal to submit to God's word and God's ways. It is an act of sinning. It is a practice of rebelling against God and stiff-arming God and saying, I don't want anything to do with you. It's not just missing the mark. It's not messing up. John is talking about a pattern of life where you are in a rejection of God altogether. He goes on, he says, You know that when He appeared, He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as He is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. For this reason the Son of God appeared, that He might destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in Him, and He cannot keep on sinning. Because he is born of God. By this is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. The implication is that we are to live as his beloved. The power of the gospel cannot remain in, in this mental, cognitive uh, construct and be detached from the rest of our life. The gospel, the power of the gospel changes us. It gives us new identities. It gives us new motivations. It gives us new affections, new desires, new pursuits. It rewires our desires and then it reshapes our behaviors. That's what the power of the gospel does. 
And this is where we have to move past just a information about who God is and understand that our belonging to God is displayed in our behaving. If we belong to God, we will reflect and demonstrate what He is like in the ways in which we live. This is what John says. He says, in, again in verse 1, for this reason, this is why the world does not know Him, know us, because it does not know Him. Verse 3 talks about this hope that we have. Something, we have this hope that is much greater. Uh, it's much more profound. It's a hope in the return of Christ, where in that moment our adoption will be made final and full and complete and perfected. Verse 3, he says, And everyone who thus hopes purifies himself as he is pure. We are God's children now, the text tells us. And so every other identifying markers of our life are washed away in the glorious reality of His love and the declaration that He gives to us that we are His kids now. And if we are the children of God, we should indeed look like our Father. Why? Verse 9 tells us, No one born of God makes practice of sinning. This idea of practice is this ongoing present, active, habitual, lifestyle dominated by practice of sinning. That's the idea. He's not talking about if you sin. We all sin. John's already made very clear that if you say you don't sin, you're a liar. We all sin. We all need to grow in repentance and keep coming to our advocate who is Jesus Christ. Here he's talking about an habitual lifestyle of rejecting who God is altogether. So we don't practice sin, meaning that we're the dominating force in our life is not sin. We have been set free from that, and we have been given a new heart that reflects the heart of our Father. But how is this possible? Is, is John here suggesting that we do this ourselves? That it's under our, our power to do this, to make this happen? I don't think so. Look at verse 5. Verse 5, he tells us, you know that He, Jesus, appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. And then in verse 8, He tells us, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now there are two big words, one of them we've already seen in John, the other one we don't see, but the two big words explaining what Jesus did is, is propitiation and expiation. Those are two huge words. What they mean is this. Propitiation means that Jesus turned the wrath of God to favor for us by bearing the wrath in Himself, the punishment of our sin. Expiation means that Jesus lifts the condemnation off of us so that the power of sin no longer dominates our life. He takes it away. He takes the power of sin away. He lifts it off of us. So it's not in our power to practice righteousness. It is the work of Jesus bearing the punishment, the guilt of our sin. And it's the, it's the work of Jesus taking the power of sin, the dominating influence of sin off of us so that we are able to practice righteousness. And furthermore, he says in verse 9 that God's seed abides in us. That term seed could refer to the Spirit of God, to the Word of God, or even the very nature of God. Paul says anyone who's in Christ is a new creature. And so it, it's likely a combination of all three that he has in mind, but it's the work of Jesus and it's the um, um, abiding 
presence of God in us that enables us to look more and more like our Father because Jesus didn't just die for sin. He destroyed the works of the devil. He didn't just come to die for us. He took sin away in the power of sin, meaning that sin no longer has a dominating impact over those who have been born again and are children of God. So why is it that we're able to practice righteousness because of the work of God in us? Why is it that we do not practice sinning because He has taken that away and it's no longer the dominant influence over our life. And this enables us to look more and more like the Father. That is why you who have been born again can practice sinning. Because He has shown us the depths of His love in, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. A child of God will look like His Father. You are His beloved. Live as His beloved. He's not saying be perfect because you can't be perfect. But there is an ongoing growing sanctification to where there is repentance and confession and a turning away from these things of sin. And as we mature, it's not that we sin less. It's that we recognize how sinful we are and we click quickly respond to that and run to the cross and repent of that and ask for forgiveness. That's what growing in Christ is. It's becoming more and more aware of how utterly sinful we are and how desperately we need the cross. Instead of hiding in shame and running a different direction, we turn quickly as we recognize it by the gifting of the Spirit of God and we run to the cross as quickly as we can. That's what spiritual maturity is. That's what it means to grow in Christ and to practice righteousness. And we have been gifted the righteousness of Jesus and enabled by the Spirit of God to walk out in that righteousness. And so I say to you, as John says in verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you with their lip service because their lives will tell you who it is that they follow, who it is that they live for. So John concludes all of this in a summary statement in verse 10 by reminding us that this is the evidence of those who are children of God and those who are children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who does not love his brother. If we are children of God, then we will look like our Father. There will be patterns in our life that indicate whose we are. And one of the evidences of that is how we love one another. How we love specifically our brothers and sisters in Christ, but also how we love those who are outside of Christ. That is an evidence of being born of God. Why? Because God is love. And so to the, to the degree that you understand and rest in the love of God for you, to that degree you will extend and love others around you. You will not go into a broken, hard, messy situation and love somebody that is unlovable unless you are resting in and understanding that God has loved you who is unlovable. And is when we see what manner of love is this that God would call me a children, a child of God, that is what compels me to go and to love my brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we have this picture of this loving Father unlike any other, and I pray that you do not retreat or resist this idea of God as Father, but that you would embrace it, that you would receive it, that you would receive His grace, that you would receive His love that He's shown to us in the Gospel, that you are adopted child of God, that He's predestined you for adoption before the world was ever even created. God set His affection on you to love you, and He brought that into reality. So what does that mean as we close out? What does that mean for us? 
What difference does this make? Maybe you're asking, as it relates to God, what is God's character as a father? I hope what you see and what you hear is that God is loving, that God is kind, that God is faithful, that He's intimate, that He's selfless, that He's generous, that He's sacrificial, that He is the initiator and secure of all that is good in my life now and forever as well as in yours. Do you see the love of the Father that John is talking about? Maybe you're asking, does He really even love me? Well, He demonstrated His love for us in the death, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And furthermore, He has adopted us into His family. He says, you are mine. He has written His name on your birth certificate. Does He have good intentions towards me? God desires to lavish His grace and His love upon His kids. That's what He does and that's what He wants to do. So maybe you're here this morning, how can I know Him? You know Him by receiving Jesus as your propitiation and your expiation, your rescuer, your redeemer, your advocate in the ways that God has revealed it to be true in Scripture. So in light of who God is and what He has done, what difference does that make for us who are in the family, who are children of God? It means that we reflect God's love in the way that we love one another. Practicing righteousness is reflecting God's love in the way that He has loved us in the way that we love one another. Practicing righteousness means that we reflect God's light by shining the gospel into dark places through our life and through what we say. Practicing righteousness means that God's life, uh, reflecting God's life in how we live in just the everyday, normal, mundane stuff of life. So two questions, and then we'll pray. When people see you, do they see the Father? Because the child of God will look like the Father. When people see you, does your life tell the truth about who God is and what He has done? And where it does not, are you running to the cross in repentance and forgiveness and being reassured once again, over and over again, that you're my child who I am well pleased and then sent back out to try it again? Do you, does your life reflect the Father? And then secondly, do you live a life practicing of sin, dominated by sin, not caring about who God is, what God has said, not believing it to be true, being the own, your own law unto yourself? Are you living a life practicing sin or are you living a life practicing righteousness? Family, God will not give up on us. His commitments are unshakable. If God was a God of weak commitments, He would have gave up on us a long, long time ago. But He is a God who keeps His commitments. We have a Father who never breaks His commitments. And the implication for us as His children is that we will reflect our Father in how we live and in how we love. Father God, we come this morning. And as we reflect upon the passage I pray that you help us to see the love of God. Sometimes we come at this as an academic exercise, as knowledge to be gained, and we say, yes, I believe this to be true. I believe that. But in our own experience, if we're honest, we struggle to 
to rest in that. We struggle to know the love of the Father. And John is writing not only to assure us uh, that, we have, that we are children of God, but he wants us to see what kind of manner and love the, that God has for us, that you have for us as your kids. And it's as we see that, Father, that our motivations change and we are compelled to live in a life that displays your love for us. It's not the other way around. So God, help us to see the love that that John lays out for us here so that we will respond. If we are His beloved, that we would live as loved. Father, we ask by Your Spirit that You would work in our hearts and our lives this morning. Help us to see that in Christ's name. Amen.